0: Welcome back everyone to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We're doing our first director spotlight on Quentin Tarantino. We figured we want to start doing director spotlights and we both agreed that Tarantino would be a perfect choice for our first one. He's probably the most requested person for us to do a podcast episode about because he's probably the most popular filmmaker, if not in the world, in America for sure. Absolutely. In terms of household name and in terms of you ask someone who you're... Like, name a Hollywood director, it's gonna be Tarantino. And very few filmmakers are able to be so good at their craft that they get a term coined after them Tarantino esque. Yes. Yeah. If so, someone makes a similar vibe movie, it's a Tarantino esque movie. Yeah. It's very rare to have that. So, we're very excited about this episode. We're very excited for you to be tuning in. Hell yeah. Don't forget, if you're new, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Hit it, hit it, press it Do right it now. now. Do right it now. It now. Follow our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you're listening. If you're an Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. Yeah, guys. Even if you're not listening on Apple Podcasts, go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. We'll be very grateful about that. We'll love you for it. We're trying to overtake rewatchables because those guys fucking suck. (laughs) Just kidding. They're great. They're great. But we're coming for that number one spot. We're getting there. All right. Let's get on to Quentin Tarantino. One of the greatest filmmakers to ever step behind the camera. Mm. Also, one of the greatest screenwriters, in my opinion, to ever write. Hands down. And probably probably my favorite director. Mm. Maybe I wouldn't say he's the best director of all time, but personally, probably my favorite director of all time. He definitely has a unique style and a unique voice. Um, I mean, yeah, you've seen the Tarantino movie so many times, but you can't help but notice there is a style and a substance to it that sets it apart from any other movie where you know that that's his movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like volume of watches, in terms of movies I've watched in my entire <laughs> life, Quentin Tarantino movies are probably top of the list. Yeah. Like way up there, like big time. Oh my God. The yeah. The amount of times I've seen, or we've seen Pulp Fiction is just absurd. <laughs> absurd. And Kill Bill. It's ridiculous. Every time it was on TV or every time we, we just put it on all the time. Yeah. But they never get old and they're endlessly rewatchable. And um, it's, it's, they'll always stand the test of time. And it's amazing to think that he's made such a profound impact with so few films. He is the definition of quality over quantity. Yeah, versus like Scorsese, who's probably probably the best director ever, but he's yeah. made like 30 movies. Yeah, or something not counting kind of like documentaries. The, yeah, not, that's something ridiculous. I and mean, Kubrick was the same way. He only made, um, I think, 11 films yeah. in total. Not, not that Tarantino doesn't produce stuff and work in other projects, but in terms of directing, he's going to end at 10, he says. So he says, it's an interesting thing to think about. He says he wants to go into writing novels and also film literature. And, I mean, I I would be excited as hell to read a a novel written by Tarantino. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. But I don't think he's going to stop making movies. I have the idea that since he turned The Hateful Eight into a miniseries on Netflix, I think it's, what, four episodes Mm -hmm. we just watched it, um, maybe he'll start do something in that realm where he's... He can make a long form uh, film because clearly he loves dialogue. Yeah, he'll get that itch eventually. He might yeah. retire for a few years, but he's get, he'll get that. He'll get an idea. He'll get the ideas in his head, the images. He'll be like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make this. Yeah, Tarantino probably loves movies more than anybody on the planet Earth. Yeah. So I, I, I find it hard to believe he'll stop. Yeah, but anyways. We're going to start off with a little bio on Tarantino, his upbringing, where he's from, and how he got into making movies. So Tarantino was born in 1963 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hmm. Moved to Los Angeles with his mother in 1966 at the age of three after his parents' divorce. He was named Quentin after Quint Asper, who was Burt Reynolds' character in the CBS series Gunsmoke. (laughs) He started writing screenplays at age 14, dropped out of high school at age 15, ushered at an adult movie theater called the Pussycat Movie Theater, as we all know, he worked at a video store in Torrance for like several years, where he developed a massive love and knowledge for film. Um, he wrote and directed his first movie in 1987 called My Best Friend's Birthday, which he never completed. But I've late- seen a few few minutes of it. Yeah, me too. And uh, he started he acted in it too, and he turned that that eventually evolved into the script for True Romance. Mm. Um, Tar- Tarantino received his first paid writing assignment in the early two 2000- thousand in the early 1990s, to write. Um, the script for From Dusk Till Dawn. Qu- and then Quentin made his first movie in 1992, Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. People think True rom- Romance was first, but he only wrote the script for True Romance. But he, Reservoir Dogs yeah. he made in 1992. He also wrote the script for Natural Born Killers. Yes, yeah, so he wrote and sold scripts for Natural Born Killers. Also an uncredited screenwriter on Crimson Tide and The Rock. Yeah. He, he um, did a lot of uh, script polishing to make Crimson Tide a little funnier and a little more relatable for the characters. Yeah. And then like, uh, there's a bit about the characters talking about comic books, the silver surfer scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that's him. Yeah. That's but Tarantino. he has a great way of connecting the audience with characters and with the exactly. dialogue, which yeah. is, you know, what they needed for those kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Harvey Keitel loved the script so much that he became a producer and funder on the, sh- on the movie. Mm hmm. Um, And then following the success of Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino was approached by Hollywood execs and offered projects like Speed, Men in Black, <laughs> but, but instead retreated to Amsterdam to work on his script Pulp Fiction, and the rest is honestly history. <laughs> one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. One of the biggest filmmakers of that like 90s independent film he in America, exploded, He exploded. Him and Soderbergh were the the beginnings of independent cinema. And PTA. And PTA, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's a brief history on him, and uh, we're, we're going to get into things that make a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie. Yeah, and why we chose to spotlight this episode on him. And then we'll get into the filmography of Tarantino. We'll go movie by movie chronologically and mm-hmm. talk about the movies and talk about Tarantino in terms of the filmmaking and writing and everything involved. Yeah. And so, first thing first, what makes a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie? I think number one would be the characters. I agree. They're always memorable. They're always unique. Um, Oftentimes, you've never seen a character like it before. They drive the movies they propel them forward based on their characteristics and their personalities. Yeah, and it's often hard to determine who the main character even is in a lot of his movies because so many characters in several of his films get the be behind the wheel of the story. Yeah. And they kind of take it on their own journey yeah, for a short period of time. Yeah. Especially like Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards, stuff like that. Mm. But they're always so unique. He's created so many iconic characters just in the history of cinema, mm. culturally and cinematically. I mean, how many people have you seen dressed up as like Beatrix Kiddo, Mia yeah. Wallace... Uh, Jules, Winfield, Vincent Vega. Mm-hmm. The characters are endless. I mean, we're talking Butch Coolidge, Marcellus Wallace, Jackie Brown, Mr. Orange, Mr. White, Paime, The Bride, Oren, Ishii, The Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, <laughs> Aldo Rain, Hans Alanda, Hugo Stiglitz, Sushana, Bridget Van Hammersmark Archie Hickox, Frederick Zoller, Sergeant Donnie Donovitz, Dr. King Schultz, Calvin Candy, Daisy Domergu Major Marquise Warren, John Ruth, The Hangman, Cliff Booth, Rick Dalton. The list is endless. It's crazy. And what I really love about his latter... Um, half of his filmography is he always made his, his films were generally contemporary um, and then when he started making period pieces it was so great to see the his characters in period pieces. It was just fascinating because they talk in a certain, they still had the Tarantino-esque dialogue and the rhythm and, and the characteristics but they were Set, like, a 100 years previous. Yeah, like, when you watch Django, yeah. and it's, like, Tarantino dialogue in Django, 19th century America in the South. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's a really great juxtaposition. Yeah, And also, um, besides characters, Tarantino uses a lot of the same actors in his movies. Yeah. Specifically, Sam Jackson, who's in pretty much, I think, every movie. He's in five. Um, besides Reservoir Dogs, he's not in. Yeah. Um, Inglorious Bastards. No, his audio, his voiceover voiceover in in Inglorious Bastards. So I think that's the only one he's not in. Maybe another one. Mm. Maybe Cliff. I mean, um, Kill Bill. He's he's probably in Kill Bill somehow. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not. But he's in most of his movies. Um, Harvey Keitel, Michael yeah. Madsen. Uwe and he Thurman. also began casting fans, people he was a fan of. Like he loved Kurt Russell growing up, and mm-hmm. now he's worked with him so many times. And it's the same thing with Bruce Stern. I'm sure with Harvey Keitel, too. Yeah. I mean, watching Harvey Keitel on Mean Streets, who wouldn't be a fan of that guy? Oh, yeah. It's pretty cool in that movie besides being a pimp, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, you're thinking of Taxi Driver. Oh, I meant Mean Streets. Tri- he's a gangster. my bad. I meant Taxi Driver. Never mind. He's cool Fucking as hell. idiot! <laughs> he's cool as hell on Mean Streets. He's got nice suits. Mm-hmm. But um, so, characters, obviously, Tarantino makes some of the most creative, unique and memorable characters uh-huh. in cinema in general. Absolutely. Everyone's favorite thing about Tarantino movies is probably the dialogue. It's unique. And, um, it has an Elmore Leonard style of um, realism. No one writes dialogue like him except for maybe Aaron Sorkin, but they're very different in the style and tone. Um, but Tarantino's dialogue is always so fun and refreshing. Um, and it, it I've read and he's done interviews where I've seen where he says that he has a photographic memory in terms of uh, remembering conversations he's had with people, like most of his life. And so, a lot, a good amount of what we see in his movies with dialogue are things that he remembers even from years ago, from someone saying it to him at a party or in a conversation at dinner with someone. And so, he has this like giant memory bank of all these random lines and um, conversations and, and sentences that people have said. And so, I, th- I think that's why he's able to make such unique dialogue. Yeah, no one writes dialogue with, like, Tarantino. Not to mention in terms of his confidence and bravery with what he wants to write. Like, the opening of Reservoir Dogs, the yeah. first line of that movie, first two lines is Mr. Pink talking about big dicks and Madonna's <laughs> song. That is the opening of the movie. Yeah. It's the first thing you hear. And that breakfast scene is iconic now. Yeah. I mean, he basically, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but that, yeah. that diner scene is basically, like, his overture of that movie, kind mm-hmm. of. Whereas, like... This is a Tarantino movie. Yeah. Before there was such thing as like, oh, this is a Tarantino movie. Yeah. All right. Next up, besides fantastic dialogue and writing, I think maybe, probably, yeah, the third most important thing of a Tarantino movie and what makes a movie a Tarantino movie is his music. Mm-hmm. And he's oh, amazing yeah. at choosing music to fit the mood of his films. And like... To quote him himself, to me, the opening credits are very important because that's the only mood time that most movies give themselves. Mm. So he uses the music and opening credits to set up the mood of every movie he makes. David Fincher does the same thing. He always has an opening credits. And the thing with music, I mean, the thing with Tarantino's choices in music... Whenever he puts songs into a movie, those songs end up becoming more famous for being in a Tarantino movie than being releases from a band. I can't think of, I can't listen to Stuck in the Middle of With You without thinking of Michael Madsen tearing that guy's ear off and, walk and dancing through Stuck the warehouse, the going to the you trunk. Every time I hear that song, I just picture that scene in Reservoir Dogs. Seriously, it's insane. So every time, yeah, you, you you just hear that on the radio. You'd be like, hey, it's Tarantino. Or right like there. Ennio Morricone music. And obviously, oh, that fits in the Tarantino movie. Yeah, he's he's really... He's used a lot of Ennio so far in his later in his career, his later movies, like yeah. starting with Kill Bill 2 mm-hmm. um, and Morricone. Um, and especially in The Hateful Eight too, and Glorious Bastards. Yeah, He didn't really use that Western style until later on. Yeah. But yeah, he started with Kill Bill. And he used a lot of Ennio Morricone's tracks that he made for old movies. And it was such so great to see... This old music used in a modern contemporary film, especially mm-hmm. like *Kill Bill*, and it really added to. It's a it's a modern film, but also it has the feeling of a vintage film. You exactly, I mean? and in terms of skill with choosing music. For movies, probably the only one who's just as good as him, maybe better the guy who kind of started it, is Scorsese. Yeah. Scorsese Scorsese's a master of picking music for his movies. I yeah. mean, put on the Goodfellas playlist on Spotify. It's the greatest like two hours you'll have in your life listening yeah. to music. What happened was John Cassavetti started doing it in the very early 60s, in the late 50s. Um, he started putting um, popular music in his, in his films. He made a few films, and then Scorsese was inspired by that. And he, went, he did one better where Mean Streets... Is pretty much loaded with uh, contemporary music. A ton of it. It's all over the place as soon as that movie starts. And it's, that was the first major American movie where it's, the whole film is just filled with all this music that everyone rec- recognizes from the radio or from records they own. It was amazing. Yeah. And the cool thing about Tarantino is his, his diversity of music he uses. Like Pulp Fiction's full of like that surfer rock, and mm-hmm. then tons of like gospel music, and then. You'll hear some some other random rock songs and jungle jungle boogie like out of nowhere. So like he sets the stage so well, and we'll get on more into that later on when we talk about the individual movies. Mm. But um, the next thing that makes a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie, in my opinion. Is non-linear storytelling mm-hmm. So his movies generally fo- generally follow a non-linear storyline Bouncing back and forth between time mm-hmm. And the perspectives of different characters yeah. Some of his movies run in a very linear, linear line yeah. With so- a, little, little a little back and forth But yeah. like Pulp Fiction was the definition of non-linear storytelling That Tarantino kind of coined And we've seen in other movies like Memento with Chris Nolan Or anything he Chris Nolan He actually inspired does. Nolan to, to write stories in that way I'm sure he did, yeah and um, I'm a huge fan of it, and I think... When it's done right. when it's, Yeah, when it's done well, obviously yeah. you can mess it up. But yeah. when you do it well, it's so effective to the audience because generally when, when you watch the average movie in Hollywood, within the first 20 minutes, you kind of know what it's going to be like, you yeah. know where it's going, you know the characters. But with the nonlinear storytelling every scene you're like you have no idea what's going to happen next you can't predict what's happening you can't predict the middle the climax the end and then you're just bouncing around to all these different storylines these different characters and you kind of don't know what the hell is going on until they all start to finally meet together Mm -hmm. towards the climax and the end of the movie and it's a cliche in hollywood where when you think of a flashback or things that bounce around they generally flash back to a tragic moment in the character's life like flashing back to like the wife getting killed, or like their son dying, or something like a memory, which informs like why the character is the way the way they are, and generally is tragic. But Tarantino is—he is, makes it interesting, and it's always it's fun and, and unique, and it adds more um, depth to the characters. And it's rare; it's never tragic. It's always it's just informative and adds more to the character. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get more into that yeah. throughout his movies. Um, and then I think um, another important aspect of Tarantino movies that make them Tarantino movies are. His unpredictable nature in writing a story um, when it comes to killing off characters that you think are the leads to changing history by killing Hitler and saving um, Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, And and there are so many scenes in his movies that are just surprising, like when Butch is driving his car and sees Marcellus on the street yeah, you're just like, holy yeah, shit. Like, what the fuck? And, and then all the-, the chances of that happening. And then there's a the scene where he saves him with a samurai sword in that basement. And it's like, what the hell? You did not see that. Like, that's so unpredictable. And I think it's essential in Tarantino movies to be unpredictable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? No, I love it. I love the unpredictability that he gives to your movies because, like I said, with the linear storytelling, also with unpredictability, you don't know what's coming. And when he throws something at you, you're just blown away. One minute he'll have you terrified, and you're in a very tense dialogue situation. You're kind of worried about the characters. Then a minute later, you're laughing your ass off. So I love the way he writes and tells his stories. Mm -hmm. All right, next up, what makes a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie? Feet, <laughs> woman's feet, all over the fucking place. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Lots I all, of, all lots all, of feet. All I saw were feet everywhere. Margot Quagley's got some big feet. Uma Thurman's got some big feet, and Tarantino really likes them. He likes those feet. I watched Jackie Brown last night, and there's a like literally there has to be a five second shot held on her on um, Bridget Fonda's feet. Yeah, th- he just holds it for like five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> hey man, you like what you like. I don't really have a problem with it. I thought there was a little too much of it in Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. There was a lot, yeah. Because you, but you, it's a three-hour movie, yeah. <laughs> but like when she's just like in the car, like all over the windshield, yeah. And everything the movie. you're like, all right, Tarantino, you did it like seven times already. I think he's just, I think it's become a joke to him now. Like just that he's like, make, he's just pushing the envelope. Also, it's you know, it's his fetish. Yeah, it's his weird thing. But I mean, he's not having girls strip naked. True. True. You know, yeah, he he very seldom. I, I I can't even think of any nudity in a Tarantino movie. He doesn't. He doesn't have women get naked. All right. Um, the next big thing in Tarantino movies, which he's also mostly criticized about, is violence on film. The aestheticization mm. of violence on the screen. And, you know, critics who see depictions of violence in film argue that it leads audience members to, be, to become desensitized to the acts of violence, hmm. which you can argue a case for that. Hmm. Visually seeing violence over and over again, you become desensitized to it happening. But I don't believe that that really translates to real life. I don't think people who watch violent movies become violent. I've seen, like I said, Kill Bill a hundred times. I've never once picked up a samurai sword and I've never been in a fight really. And yeah, I've, I've witnessed an obscene amount of violence on film and TV and I've had no inclination to ever hurt someone else. Yeah. So, and we talked about this on the Joker podcast. Yeah. I mean, and other critics claim it's cathartic to see it on screen because it provides acceptable outlets for antisocial impulses. So maybe someone seeing that on screen makes them feel better about things that they're insecure about. Yeah, I can, you know, get, that. I can I, get behind that. Personally, I don't have an issue with violence on camera. Not that I'm desensitized to it, but it doesn't make me want to cause violence. doesn't make provoke me to cause violence. I think it's just a different form of art that... Like, directors like Tarantino do it artistically in, in an aesthetic way where, obviously, you're not going to try to replicate it in person. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's just done because it's fun in movies. It's fun to see in movies. It's fun to see these kung fu fights. It's fun to see sword fights, yeah. gunfights, shootouts. I mean, there's a reason why John Wick makes $500 million every time Ab- a movie absolutely. comes out. Absolutely, and I think people just look for something to attack. Yeah, and sometimes the violence is called for in terms of accuracy. I mean, like, Django Unchained... He wanted to make a movie that accurately portrayed what slavery was like in the South, in 19th century America. Yeah, And it's it's a disservice to the horrific tro- atrocities those people went through to not show really what it was like yeah. and to show a toned-down version, which Django even is a toned-down version of it. They showed it in 12 Years of Slave. but it, Yeah, but those two movies do a great job of showing what it's really like and what it was really like. And mm-hmm. to say that's, that's too violent to show, I think it's... A disservice to to what happened, and mm-hmm. it's it's a form of history, in in some cases like that, yeah. But I then agree. in Kill Bill, it's just awesome, yeah, it's sick. That's the thing is like you, it's I watch a Tarantino movie and I expect violence, yeah. If you like, don't like in, in Once Upon a Time, you I was waiting for the violent scene to happen, and then Brad Pitt beat the shit out of that guy, and the on the ranch, and I was like, oh, this is awesome, yeah, yeah. You knew it was coming, you yeah. wanted it so bad, and you know what? If you don't want to watch violent movies, don't watch don't violent watch movies. There are a, a 100,000 100, 100, movies that come out every decade. Watch one of those. Go on Netflix. There's there plenty. are so many movies you can yeah. watch on Netflix. Don't complain about. Don't complain, about, don't complain about nine movies. Turn on HGTV. You'll have a wonderful, safe, happy night <laughs> and drink some wine. You know, just don't watch violent movies. And then just one more quick thing to talk about in terms of what makes Tarantino movies. Tarantino. One, movie. Another one. After all right, that. I have one more. I, I want to go over just like quick filmmaking techniques that he's kind of famous for, known for. Specifically, he has these great wide shots he likes to do. Tons of POV shots like POV out of a trunk or POV on the ground. Um, Effective extreme close-ups like the beer in Django. The eyes of characters who are about to fight and kill Bill. Very spaghetti western-y. The needle and heroin injections in Pulp Fiction. The pastry in Inglorious Bastards. Plus, I am a huge fan of his crash zooms, which are those violent, really quick zoom-ins onto a specific object or person. He also does a lot of the uh, overhead shots where the the ceiling is uh, invisible. And we're just watching the scene play out from way above a bird's eye view of the characters. He does that a lot. Um, he he uses Steadicam um, a lot in Pulp Fiction, especially. Um, there's a great Steadicam shot up tracking, uh, Bruce following Bruce Willis um, when he goes to his apartment to, to get the uh, watch, the kangaroo watch the kangaroo. on the kangaroo Um <laughs> <On> kangaroo. <laughs> the the most definitive aesthetic um, that makes a Tarantino a Tarantino film is that he shoots on film. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and we'll get into the, his preservation of film yeah. and how big of an advocate he is on that, on keeping film alive, keeping film being used to make movies and being projected on screens. And preserving classic films. Yes. Um, all right. Um, how about we uh, get directly into the chronological order of his films? Let's, let's get right in there, what man. What do you think? Let's get deep. First one we got, Reservoir Dogs, which came out in 1992. And this movie transformed Quentin Tarantino practically overnight from an obscure part-time actor, um, unproduced screenwriter, Mm -hmm. into basically overnight one of the most influential young filmmakers in America. Mm -hmm. Reservoir Dogs' brilliance is uh, in how it um, redefines the crime movie, uh, especially in in the fact where... Um, the movie is about a robbery, but we don't even see the robbery. That's the best part about it. That's what makes it so good, where Tarantino takes the same old story and he he tells it in a new and unique way, and it's brilliant. And I think audiences are are always craving something new, you know what I mean? Something unique. It's a jewelry heist gone wrong because there's an undercover cop in the gang of robbers Spoiler alert right now, real quick. It came out in Spoilers. 1992. Tim Roth plays the undercover cop in the gang, Mr. Orange, and he helps uh, foil the robbery plan. Mm. And again, you don't see the heist, and yeah. you don't have to because he's so good with his dialogue, he's so good with his characters that you don't need to see it. Yeah. All you see is before and after. All that matters is, is yeah, is especially the, the aftermath and trying to figure out what happened because we know it went wrong. But that's not what's important. What's important is how did it go wrong. And that's how Tarantino, that's what the story is. Tarantino slowly shows us what went wrong. Yeah. And you know, the opening of this movie, again, we started with earlier that it's, it's that opening diner scene hmm. with everyone talking and they, they talk about um, the, the Madonna song. And then they also talk about the merits of tipping with the which real, is- realism dialogue. It's an iconic scene mm. in Quentin Tarantino's filmography, but it's really kind of not really the opening of his movie. It's more like an overture yeah. because after that, there's that, there's that uh, high shutter, slow-mo walking scene of the credits, yeah, the his, credit n- his iconic uh, yeah. uh, credit roll, and then walking the whole gang walking to the car. To the parking lot, but then the real opening shot to this movie is the cut directly to Tim Roth, Mr. Orange, in the back seat of the car, covered, covered in blood, yeah, screaming, has been shot. Mm. And Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, is there trying to comfort him the whole time. And so, when you see that, you're like, Holy shit, what we're happened in for a ride right now? Yeah, this is what this movie is. And then this shot also reflects the nonlinear storytelling of Tarantino, specifically in this movie, Mm. where Tim Roth's character throughout this whole movie, he's either in the past, present, or future. and You know, this shot, he's kind of a little bit of everything because later on you'll find out that he's an undercover cop and you go through his whole backstory of learning and Mm. getting into the gang. And then this is after the robbery, after he's been shot. So the way he starts is a really interesting point. And what's so fun about that scene is... Because, like we mentioned, he doesn't show the robbery. He leaves it up to us to try to maybe kind of think about what happened. Like, imagine kind of in our heads, like, what it, what happened at the robbery. Because the closest thing to the robbery that we see is Steve Buscemi running through the street uh, firing on cops. That's, like, the closest to the robbery we get. Basically. So, otherwise, we kind of have to make it up for ourselves, which is pretty fun. Yeah. I enjoy that a lot. There's a lot of fun things about this movie. And, again, it, it's kind of... Just takes the whole crime genre and just shows the sloppiness of a of a crime and Mm -hmm. a robbery and what can go wrong and the things that you don't usually see with these crews. It's like you don't really see that too often in films and. The way he writes the dialogue, it's it's a lot of fun to see that. Yeah, he does it in a, in a really unique way. And like one of my favorite parts of the movie is is the names yeah. that they all give each other because it seems so like oh that's actually a smart thing for for criminals to do is to not know each other's names. Yeah, and the way they do that and the whole scene is just hilarious when uh, the leader, uh, the guy who set up the score, is just giving out all the names to people. And Steve Buscemi gets Mr. Pink, and he's like, why do I gotta be Mr. Pink? <laughs> you missed the bank you missed the bank because you're a f word (laughs) (laughs) can't say that anymore um and then it's just a hilarious two minute back and forth between buscemi and mr white and then michael Madsen, and then the leader again yeah and then it's a two minute conversation about this and it's hilarious but it's just so realistic to to real life talk the way people interact that it's just perfect and it's memorable dialogue yeah yeah it's great and it introduced us to so many young actors like Tim Roth and Buscemi especially, mm-hmm. and they took off after this movie. But Buscemi's, I think, is one of the highlights of this movie. I think he might be my favorite character in the movie. He's just so funny, no, and he's, he's so great. he has so much energy. You know, what I mean, he's it's infectious. He drinks a cup of coffee every morning. So really, I mean, he's getting he, well in the movie. Remember, <laughs> oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I like my coffee yeah, yeah. filled six times. She yeah. only filled it out three times. <laughs> what if she's too damn busy? <laughs> one of my favorite parts about Reservoir Dogs is the the story that he forms. Um, which is his undercover trainer. The Komodo story. The Komodo story. Um, And we get to see the stages of him trying to memorize the story, um, nailing it down, and then getting better at acting with it and then getting better, and then actually telling the story to the gangsters in the bar. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're a little on edge for him because if he gets anything wrong, he's dead. Yeah, it's like a four-stage par- process. He yeah. learns the story, rehearses it, yeah. um, performs it, and then Tarantino brings it to life. Yeah. And there's the shot of him doing the scene yeah, that, that he's making that he made up. Yeah, he in the learned, bathroom, in the yeah. bathroom. And the ironic thing about that scene is the only thing that's really distracting the cops in the fake story uh, from realizing that he has drugs on him is that the other cop is also telling a story to the other cops. Mm-hmm. So really, it just shows like how strong storytelling is between humans. Beings and how important it is to us Most important art craft we have It really is but I I love that It's a great uh, sequence in the film Mm -hmm. There's something minute and small that Tarantino Does in this movie that I really like where It really just brings you into the world As a viewer and audience member That you don't really see in films too often Where he does this thing with K. Billy's Super Sounds of the '70s, mm-hmm. and it kind of it happens like like three or four times throughout the movie. It's yeah. in the beginning too with the music, so it's like this DJ voiceover who's constantly playing the music and like going over the sounds. And they even mention it. Nice guy Eddie brings it up at the diner scene in the beginning of the movie. He's like, "Hey, have you guys been listening to K. Billy's Super Sounds of the '70s?" And um, it's just really fun because it really pulls you into the story, pulls you into this world, it makes this the world universe. Feel, feel real, yeah. it Feels real, like yeah. it's authentic. And I, I love that idea. And I think that's one of the underrated points in and things that Tarantino does in this film mm. that really draws you in as an audience member. Yeah, absolutely. And how he uses music to help tell the story. And like going back to that the Michael Madison torture scene, it's such a great scene, and it's so memorable because. Not because of the scene itself, but because how Tarantino films it with the long take where he, he's a patient filmmaker where most most filmmakers would have been like, oh, he needs to go to the guard. We'll just cut him open the trunk. He'll grab the thing. And then we cut him back in the warehouse. But Tarantino is like, no, I want to take my time with it. So it makes you feel like you're there with him. So we follow Michael Madsen out of the warehouse, open the trunk, grab the item. And then follow him back into the warehouse. And it's been like a minute and a half of that. But it feels like we're there with him. Mm -hmm. And we're like by his side as he's about to torture this person. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we remember the music so much is because he's such a strong director. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to go off the music, the way Tarantino kind of sets up his scenes and his plot points with the nonlinear storytelling, specifically with like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, is it's almost like like a like a musical album where the tracks are all different but they're all positioned in specific spots like like mm-hmm. track one is like the opening to the the album like this is what the album's gonna be like mm-hmm. then maybe track two is a little softer but then like track three is this raucous song Mm. then track four is maybe even more than that then track five slows you down a little bit but they're all connected in different ways too and it's kind of interesting if you look at it like that and then you like kind of think of like a like take one of your favorite albums and then reorder that album in terms of the tracks and what Mm. it would sound like and how you would perceive the album differently take the scenes and if you put them in linear order it's not as effective Mm. or like say you open the you open the movie with um, Mr. Orange is working with his his handler, the cop, with his undercover stuff, and that's the opening of the movie. Yeah, you know, you just get a different perspective of the feel of the movie. And it's really cool because um, Tarantino's writing process is—we talked about it on an earlier podcast—where he writes to music that he's picked out for the for the for the movie. Like he'll first thing he'll do is he'll come up with an idea. It could be a small idea, and then he then he'll listen to different um, songs and albums to try and figure out how to tell that story, and then when he finds the right song, he feels like he can write a scene to that song. Yeah, he's got his so own like, often, record room. Yeah, so oftentimes when you hear a song in one of his movies, he wrote the scene to that song, which is really cool when you think about it. Yeah, and he, he'll like put on his headphones and realize, oh, this is a cool song for this scene, or exactly. this is a co- cool song for this movie. I should start writing to this right now. Yeah. And um, Reservoir Dogs, it's, it's obviously not his best movie, mm. but it really for sure cemented America in, make, in the film world with this new talent. Yeah. And it defined like there's a new career about to launch. This guy is the real deal. One of the hottest directors that will ever be. And he blew up overnight and completely unique. It's probably one of the best debut films you'll ever see from a director. It's, it's one of the best heist movies ever made and you don't see the heist. Yeah, and I mean... That's that's completely true. <laughs> and I mean, how many crime movies and heist movies have tried to copy it or mimic it or rip mm-hmm. it off in some ways or have been influenced by it in, yeah. a, in a bunch of different yeah. ways? He redefined the genre of the crime movie. Yeah. He, I mean, he redefined cinema eventually. Yeah. But um, I'm a, I love Reservoir Dogs. It's a great time and the performances are great. Launched so many great careers. Um, yeah, that's all I got on that movie. Let's move on, man. All right. Next up, we got... Pulp Fiction, 1994. Oh, damn. The movie that changed everything. Changed mm-hmm. Tarantino's life and career. Changed cinema in general. He won the Palme d'Or for this movie. Yeah, which is Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. He got nominated for Best Screenplay. I mean, he won Best Screenplay at the Academy Awards. Nominated for Best Director. The film was also nominated for Best Picture. I mean, I, th- I feel like Hollywood is uh, hesitant to give Tarantino a Best Director award because he has that stigma of violence against his movies. It's crazy when you think about it, man, because he's lost to some movies that don't even stand up to his at all. Yeah, and it's also kind of like when you think of... Scorsese didn't win an Oscar for Best Director until The Departed. Yeah, until 2004. And you're like, what? How did he not win for Goodfellas, at least? Kubrick never won Best Director. Yeah, so obviously Hollywood, you know, they're all about storyline and stuff like that, but... You know, a lot of a lot of directors' awards don't define them, whereas mm. some directors they are defined by awards. Tarantino is not defined by his awards; he's defined by his work. Mm. Um, and this movie defined Tarantino uh, overnight as one of the best young filmmakers working. Um, it changed cinema because, and and it comprised of so many different kinds of storylines, and is almost like a love letter to cinema because Tarantino just took so many genres and like. Cliche stories of like you know the boxer throwing the fight, the the crime duo, the crime lord, the yeah. druggies. He yeah. put, he took all his favorite categories and movies and kind of just put them all into one thing, yeah. which you never really seen done before. Yeah, not not because you see ensembles with um, like Robert Altman made a lot of films about ensembles with um, separate stories that intersect, but they were never um, going back and forth in time like this one. So he he did redefine a new way to tell a story, absolutely for cinema, and um, ironically. Just like Reservoir Dogs, um, this film opens with a character speaking in a diner having breakfast. Yeah, you're right. And it's funny. Every single Tarantino movie, um, his characters are, are in a, a restaurant for at least one scene hmm. in every single movie. Yeah. I love that opening, too. It's, it's such great a great opening. opening. It really yeah, is. great dialogue scene. And yet, like... It gets you up to speed with like what the what the movie is. Yeah, and the great thing about it is it's the last scene of the movie, yeah. and also the first scene it's of the, the movie. bookend. Yeah, and it's amazing. Like who the fuck does that? Yeah. Who does shit like that? Again, he took the non-linear storytelling that he developed with Reservoir Dogs and just turned it to a new notch with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And then not only is the non-linear storytelling amazing, he's this uh, this movie again is highly violent, but also laugh out loud funny in so many mm-hmm. situations. It's, it's great, hilarious. The funniest scene in the movie is probably when uh when the wolf comes to help fix the situation. Um, and there's so many there's so many bits and one-liners between the group and like when Vincent and Jules are washing their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's he's <laughs> drying. He's like you got bloody hands. He's like, you wash me, wash you them. wash me, wash them. I wash you get them wet. <laughs> he's using uh, Tarantino's towels. Yeah, and then there's the uh, the imaginary scene where um, they're carrying the body and, and, his, and Tarantino's wife comes home and he's like, oh, honey, honey. <laughs> I love before that when, when Marvin gets shot in the face. Oh my god. That's hysterical. You shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> Marvin, you gotta have an opinion about this. <laughs> That's hilarious because the first time you see it, you're like, what the just happened but i'd say probably the best probably the best scene that opens up that movie it's not the diner scene i would say it's the it's the apartment scene with jules and vincent when they go to marvin's apartment yeah that dialogue scene in that situation um and especially because it starts with them doing the chit chat through the hallway talk about mia wallace and how he has to go on a date with him so we're setting up we're already wondering who mia wallace is and who are who marcellus wallace is and who these new characters yeah, are and who they are it's so funny, and um, they're both—they both have a lot of charisma. And and then we're like, who are these guys? Because we saw them pull guns out, but like, what are they doing when they go into the apartment? And the scene takes takes over. You're like, oh my god, this is amazing! Like this is—you've never seen a crime movie with characters talking like this before. Yeah, it's always the crime movies are always the same old things, same old dialogue, same old situations. But with Tarantino's, everything is fresh. Talk about foot massage for like two yeah. minutes. Yeah, in a crime movie. So not only are you getting a sense of Mia Wallace through their conversation, you're getting a sense of Marcellus Wallace, and you're kind of, again, that opening diner scene, kind of like Reservoir Dogs, isn't really like the opening scene to the story. It's yeah. like kind of the overture to the film. Yeah. And in this opening scene is, this is what this movie's about. Whereas Reservoir Dogs... Bloody gunshot wounds to the body. You yeah. know what happened. Mystery everywhere. You're opening up uh, Pulp Fiction with the scene between these two awesome, interesting guys. Yeah, talking about all sorts of things that you don't know about yet. And then they're busting out guns. They're pulling out that we should have had shotguns. It's like, what the fuck yeah. are they doing? Yeah, but he makes it fun with like the whole big Kahuna, big Kahuna burger bit. Mmm, they big got big Kahuna burger. I hear they got some tasty burgers. <laughs> that, you got anything I can wash down that burger with Sprite? S- Sprite's, Sprite's good. good. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like it, it, he makes it fun and interesting. Keep chilling. Keep chilling. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? <laughs> so that scene it's iconic because we can quote it because it, it's so good. And then he does the whole prayer before he shoots the guy. Yeah. And like that's the first time we see the prayer, which is also iconic. So many things about that scene, though. Specifically the the case. Yeah. You never know what's inside this the case. Gold, the go- glowing light. It's awesome. And yeah. the whole movie, you're like, what's in the goddamn case? Yeah. What's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? And then really it's just a freaking light. But the mystery of that just allures you. So the scene really just allures the audience member into the story and you're drawn in. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the movie is just like you learn about all these cool characters, all these different storylines until they all start to intersect with each other. And it's great because it's not like that cheesy. They all intersect at the same time. You know what I mean? It's not like all these characters they meet doing something. Like, they intersect in different ways with each other in different situations. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the cast is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. I mean, one of the keys to making this movie and making it as big as it was, and and probably one of the reasons it became so iconic and had such a good response, is Bruce Willis. I mean, Bruce Willis was an A-list star. Travolta was popular before, but his career was dwindling down. Sam L. was kind of unknown. Um, Uma Thurman was kind of unknown. And Vincent, I mean, um, Ving Rams was kind of unknown, but Bruce was like the key. They needed yeah. the star power from him. He wanted to be Vincent originally. Yeah, he wanted, yeah. And, you know, the guy had been making fat checks, like, from Die Hard. But he had a couple duds back-to-back previously in his his last two movies. So he signed on to this to be the smaller role of Butch, who's a great character in itself. Yeah. And it might be Bruce Willis's most iconic role besides John McClane, if not more iconic. Besides John McClane, I think so, yeah, 100%. And he's great in it, and he's perfect for it. You can't imagine anyone else playing it. And then what's really funny about Sam L is um, he almost didn't have that that Jerry Curl hair. Mm-hmm. They um, he was originally just going to use his normal natural hair. Um, and like they were on set, and then he was like, "I need a wig. I need to, I need to wear a wig." And then Tarant they didn't have any wigs on set for the for the shoot. And so the Tarantino had a, a PA run to like the nearest wig store to grab something. So the PA came back and grabbed that Jerry Curl wig. And then uh, he put it on and Tarantino was like, that's Jules. And then they filmed. (laughs) He looks great in it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sam L. is amazing in this movie. Uh, Travolta is amazing. Everyone's so good in this movie. And again, the music is fantastic. He uses a lot of that like surfer rock and roll, like just heavy instrumental guitar riffs. Mm-hmm. Let's Stay Together is just a classic song. Yeah, Girl, You'll Get a Woman Too. Like so many iconic songs that fit each scene perfectly and each character perfectly that mm-hmm. you'll just still remember it. I still remember them to this day. And I still listen to like a Tarantino soundtrack. And I just love it the whole time. And you, you really feel like... You can watch the movie in your head when you're just listening to the music on an album. Yeah, absolutely. And they're just, Pulp Fiction has so many, like I said, unpredictable moments. They're just so shocking. Like when you go from um, Vincent getting killed by Butch when he sneaks into his apartment. I was like, the, that's the, a, that was like my favorite character. Yeah, when you, like the Pop Tarts go off and then the door opens and he just shoots Vincent. <laughs> like he's like, and you're like, holy shit, Vincent's dead? Yeah. And he, he shows up later in the movie because the, the time shifts. Um, when Butch goes down to save Marcellus from from the basement from the guys raping him, you're like, "What the fuck? This is crazy!" Well, the, 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 that scene is just nuts. The whole thing is insane. So, so like that's something Tarantino does. Like the first time watching all of his movies, pretty much he shocks the hell out of you. At yeah. some point, you're gonna be shocked, and again, but he has that that great skill of like being an orchestrator of the audience where like he'll make you feel terror, he'll make you feel confusion, yeah. he'll make you laugh, he'll make you love characters at one time, he'll make yeah. you have a fun time during the movie. He'll again then a minute later he'll make you terrified again. Exactly. And that go that's perfectly illustrated um when Mia Wallace overdoses and he can't take her to the hospital. So he goes to that goes to his uh, drug dealer's house and the scene is terrifying but hilarious at the same time. Just get the shot. What are you looking for? A felt pen. <laughs> A goddamn magic marker. <laughs> what are you looking for? A little black medical book. <laughs> what are you looking for? <laughs> A little black medical book. <laughs> it's just so funny. But what's really cool about that scene is when when uh, Vincent drives the needle into her chest. It looks so real, mm-hmm. and he like really drives it. And in order to depict that um, properly, because he didn't want they didn't want to hurt Uma Thurman is what, what they did was Tarantino shot it in reverse and then played it back. So they started with the needle on Uma Thurman's chest and then um, John Travolta pulled it back real quick So and then they reversed it so it looks like he's slamming it into her chest real hard. And he has that really good thud. Yeah. That's like the most common like pulp fiction or Quentin Tarantino costume I ever see is, yeah, is Mia, Mia Wallace, Wallace with the uh, red felt marker mark on her chest. cigarette like this. Yeah, it's every girl does it at some point during <laughs> Halloween at some point in their life. Um and I think an icon- iconic scene in this movie is um them two dancing at the diner at uh, Jack Rabbit Slims. That whole scene is iconic. Yeah. I love it so much. Again again, like we could quote this freaking movie like we could if probably shake. like we could probably from our heads like write fifteen percent of the dialogue. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's just so memorable. That's how and great it the is. The dialogue is fantastic. And yeah. also a cool tidbit about this movie is like when you watch it and you're paying attention, the Mia Wallace uh her dialogue after um no, Her dialogue at the diner, she talks about Fox Force 5, which uh, is a group of uh, female assassins. Fighting, yeah. Yeah. And then it's just like, it's a precursor and obviously inspiration for Kill Bill. Yeah. And it's just an awesome little tidbit. When you see mm. Kill Bill and then you watch Pulp Fiction, you're like,
1: dude, oh, he had cool.
0: this idea all along. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Mm. Or maybe not the idea for a movie, but the idea of something like that. Some kind of crime, like assassin woman. Yeah. Again, I mean, we've all seen Pulp Fiction, uh, thirty times at least. I'm sure everyone listened to this. You've seen it a dozen times. I think Pulp Fiction um, is the definitive movie for Tarantino. Yeah, because it has, it depicts all the qualities of him as a filmmaker in a giant in a package. Like, and you see all of his tendencies, all of his uh, brilliance, all of his creativity on display in it. All right, we're done with Pulp Fiction. Let's move on to Jackie Brown, which came out in 1997, starring Pam Greer, Michael Keaton, just an all-around fantastic Bobby De Niro. Bobby De Niro, Samuel Jackson, full of great actors, mm. full of great performances. Um, as opposed to Pulp Fiction, this is a much lighter tone. It's a little sweeter of a movie. It's got heart to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you really emotionally connect with uh, Jackie Brown, played mm. by Pam Greer. I think he specifically wrote this for her. Yeah, this was a calling card to his love of uh, black exploitation films. Yeah, and um, yeah, Jackie is the character you can't help but love and connect with, despite her criminal past. You just want her to you succeed want her to get out of it because you know she's a good person deep down, yeah. despite what she's done in her past. You, you can tell she's a good person. Mm. What I love about this movie is uh, Sam Jackson plays a great villain. Oh, awesome! He's fantastic. Like it, his look is ridiculous. Everything like he's got the longest hair; it goes down below his shoulders, but is, he's balding. And he keeps his hair in a ponytail, but when he lets it out, like in the second half of the movie, it just like streams down his back. It's like he looks ridiculous. Yeah, and he's got that that like hair down his chin, like tied up. So it's like a a little like rat tail on his chin. It's a very odd look. And I know Sam L is very particular about how he looks in his films. Uh, I'm sure he came up with that whole freaking thing on his own. But it's great. He's he's fantastic, and he he really he's really uh, intimidating, um, but entertaining. And to watch. Yeah. And this has a really great opening shot, too, with um, Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, who plays a flight attendant, is, goes on like that uh, walking conveyor belt, yeah. and the camera just tracks with her. Uh, and there's just the, the credits roll right in front of her face to the left of the screen. And it's like a minute and a half long. It's a really cool shot. I really like it a lot. Mm-hmm. And then you you have the uh, colors of the different tiles on the wall behind her just changing with, uh, yeah. with the distance of the hallway. It's a really cool shot. Mm-hmm. A lot of critics and audiences were kind of confused by. Tarantino when he went the route with this movie making it as his, as his uh, third Follow movie. up to pulp. Follow up to Pulp Fiction. Yeah. But I mean Tarantino um, he knew that he could probably never top Pulp Fiction or even match it um, the success that that movie got. I mean yeah, Pulp it was, Fiction it rocketed. was a phenomenon. Yeah. I mean that was the biggest movie of the decade. Maybe not box office. Maybe not um, culturally. Num- yeah but influentially yeah. and culturally the biggest movie of the decade for sure. Maybe since then. And um, he knew he couldn't match it, so he kind of sa- he says he went. Um, he chose to do a movie below it and a movie more personal on purpose. Yeah, and he's a big Elmore Leonard fan, so I'm sure he enjoyed making this movie. And uh, although you know Tarantino was one of the hottest directors at the time, and this when this movie came out, um, to his surprise, and I'm sure to a lot of people's surprise, it wasn't the talk of the town. Hmm. The talk of the town was Boogie Nights, made by Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson. And um, Boogie Nets was the biggest film of the year, and it also launched the career of another great independent um, independent filmmaker who got his in the 90s, mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson, who's probably one of our favorite filmmakers, too. And um, it just shows the how exciting American cinema was in the 90s. Like, like, cinema shifts in terms of, like, who's doing, like, the most exciting stuff. Like, one decade, it's French. One decade, it's Korea. It just changes, like, every decade to yeah. different countries and different uh, styles of cinema, in the '90s, was pretty big for independent film in America. Yeah, and um, and both these guys are in the Valley. Yeah, and Paul Thomas Anderson was the new star director, new hottest director in Hollywood. And um, there's a story where Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson was doing all these interviews for Boogie Nights and getting asked all these questions, but he would consistently get asked about Tarantino, and he would always get compared to Tarantino by interviewers. And uh, he says that he called up Tarantino one day. He's like, "Hey, man, I keep getting asked about you. Um, we've met before. You probably don't remember." but I um, I would love to just get together so that like we can clear the air and just like mm. communicate so that it, this doesn't become awkward and they become great became great friends since then. Yeah. It was people the, the media kind of turned into a, a um rivalry, a rivalry but it wasn't. Yeah, but it wasn't. They just at both all. love filming our are, are talented directors and they both make made films in the LA. Is what it is, I think, more than anything. Yeah, and I really like Boogie Nights a lot. That Boogie yeah. Nights a lot. That's a fantastic movie. One of the best openings I've ever seen in a movie before, oh, too. It's, it's fantastic. That opening shot is incredible. That, that's Tarantino's favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie is Boogie Nights. What's your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? There'll be blood, man. Yeah, kid. Leia. Yeah, kid. But um, a, a story that I love about Jackie Brown is how um Tarantino got Robert De Niro to star in it because um. Yeah, he had come off Pulp Fiction, but De Niro is very particular, was very particular about the movies he starred in back then. Tarantino had a meeting set up with him, and this was a meeting to pitch the movie. Um, he had read the script and also to try to get De Niro to agree to be in it. And um, before the meeting, Tarantino spoke with a friend of his who told him that um, if he's going to meet with De Niro, make sure he knows what his character's shoes are going to be. Because De Niro is very particular about what his character's shoes are. And so Tarantino was like, okay, I'll I'll take that note. And so him and De Niro had a meeting. Um, Tarantino said it didn't seem to be going very well. Um, And then it seemed to be teetering off. And then De Niro just sits there and he's like, what kind of shoes does he wear? (laughs) (laughs) And Tarantino's like, funny you asked that. And so he had this whole spiel prepared about about, um, the character's shoes. And then De Niro's like, all right. (laughs) Right, I'll do it. <laughs> I wonder why he's obsessed with that Maybe it shows, it shows him the that they care about the character Exactly, character. Um, they care about the character and also it's they've thought about the character enough to even figure out what kind of shoes they're wearing yeah. so that means they, they know their stuff What do you think about his character in this movie though? It's, I've never seen De Niro do anything like it um, He's The thing is he, unlike a lot of De Niro characters this character is very quiet um, but he's he's dangerous but he seems to be like He's been in. He was just. He just got out of prison, so he he seems to be like socially awkward in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he and he has violent tendencies. Like it's that scene when he shoots um um Bridget Fonda because she's just annoying him. She just won't <laughs> shut up. Yeah, she he keeps saying his name. That's the best part. That's Lewis. his best part of the movie. Louis, <laughs> because like Tarantino, I mean um. De Niro, like he's obviously a legendary actor, and he's this is a couple years coming off of Goodfellas in 1990. Yeah, and um, he's a legend, and he's still in his prime. And you kind of the first time you watch Jackie Brown, you're kind of like he's, he's kind of like wasting De Niro's talents in this movie. He's kind of just chilling on the side, smoking mm-hmm. weed. He has the, the those kitchen scenes and the scenes in uh, Samuel Jackson's apartment. Yeah. But like Jackie Brown is one of those movies that you gotta watch it multiple times to really appreciate how great of a movie it is. Yeah. Obviously, it's not Tarantino's best, but it's a really well-made movie, really well-written. It's a very diverse movie in terms of characters. I mean, there are three black lead characters in this movie. I mean, yeah. Chris Tucker's career launched from this movie. Yeah, Samuel Jackson's career got huge from this movie, mm-hmm. as well as Pulp Fiction. Um, and then Pam Grier, obviously. Yeah. Chris Tucker's in this movie. He's hilarious. He's super funny. He's so funny. Yeah, yeah. You can, and and you can, he's so young. Yeah, he's like skinny as hell. Yeah. and It's like right before rush hour. The yeah. kid is like, pin, like skin and bones. He's wearing that white beater all the time. But there's a great story about how um, Tarantino got linked up with Sam Jackson. Um, and it led to their um, collaboration for over decades. Um, so for pulp, for, for pulp Fiction, Tarantino wanted Lawrence Fishburne because he loved him. He's a big fan of his, and he he wrote um, Jewels for um, Lawrence Fishburne. And then they met. He Fishburne read the script, and he loved it, and he really wanted to do it. But his management team advised him not to because they wanted him to just stick with leading man roles they wanted his because his goal for his team was i'm going to be a leading man in hollywood i can't take an ensemble supporting character role even though it's a great role he turned it down um and so since he turned this down sam jackson got the part instead and then after this after after pulp fiction sam jackson did uh die hard with a vengeance which is awesome it's, i love die hard with a Vengeance. And it made a ton of money. And so with Die Hard with a Vengeance, that studio wanted, they were in talks with Lawrence Fishburne to do it, but they weren't, they didn't want to pay Lawrence Fishburne as much as he wanted. They wanted to pay him like 200K, but Fishburne wanted a few million because he had been leading in movies. And the studio was like, oh, we're not sure if we want to pay Fishburne this much. And then they're like, they heard rumblings about this movie Pulp Fiction with Sam Jackson in it. So they were like, you know what? We heard this guy is really good in this movie, so let's, let's check it out. So then they saw, they watched a screening of Pulp Fiction, and they loved Sam Jackson. So then they were like, Sam Jackson's our guy for Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> so so turning down Pulp Fiction cost him Die Hard with a Vengeance as well. That's crazy. Do you know how he got Pulp Fiction, though? Or how he got, like, contacted with Tarantino? No. Uh, Sam L. Jackson went to the Reservoir Dogs premiere. Uh. He had no idea what who Tarantino was or what he looked like. But then he found him after the premiere. And he's like, "Yo, man, you got to put me in your next movie, like right now." <laughs> so that's kind of like how he got his foot in the door with Tarantino. Uh, he went cool. right up to him and told him that. Hmm. I'm sure that's how they connected. But um, yeah, Jackie Brown's a great watch. It's a lot of fun. I mean, there's some great actors in it. Michael Keaton's in it. He plays a cop and he's freaking awesome in yeah. it. Um, I, I would say it's a really unique movie um, in Tarantino's filmography. It's probably the most unique out of his, out of all of his films. Big time. Probably yeah. the least violent. Yeah, it's it's yeah, definitely the least violent for sure. But it's really great, obviously. And he shot it in a way where it feels like it was made in like the 60s. Yeah. Um, it has a very vintage style of filmmaking to it. Yeah, and you spend a lot of time with Jackie yeah. as opposed to like a ton of other characters. You spend a lot of time with other characters too, but Jackie gets a lot of screen time mm-hmm. compared to Pulp Fiction when you're bouncing around so much. Yeah. If you love Tarantino and you love um, slow burns, this is perfect for It's got, for got you. a great little love story in it too. It's got everything. Yeah, it's got that a great kiss at the end. Yeah, and Sam L., again, terrifying in this movie. Looks and character. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our episode on Quentin Tarantino. Please tune in tomorrow, Monday, August 24th, for part two. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're new. Follow Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean. Hit us up on TikTok, Instagram, at Raiders of the Lost podcast and leave us a five-star review so new people can find us. We really appreciate all of your support, and thank you so much.